Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. ...and the details that surrounded that night. Andy reminded us last week that Jesus' arrival was the culmination and the fulfillment of centuries-old promises from God. It was something that the past had been building to. History had been pointing to this moment, this event that would happen in Bethlehem. But at the same time, Jesus' arrival, Jesus's arrival was also marking the beginning of a new future the beginning of a new era and a new promise that is still being realized in human history. We can't fully appreciate Christmas if we limit the Christmas story to the story of the angels and the shepherds and the manger and the star. Christmas can only truly be understood in the context of eternity, both past and future. And the preposterous paradox of Christmas is that with the birth of a helpless baby boy to an ordinary common family in a backwoods place on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, God was giving humanity exactly what we needed. I was watching some movies with my son over my sabbatical. I actually made a list of a number of movies that I wanted to show him. Most of them were produced before he was born, and so I was kind of getting him caught up on some films that he might not discover on his own. And one of the films we watched together was Castaway. You, you might remember this movie. It's, you know, 23 years old now. It features Tom Hanks as this executive with FedEx. His name is Chuck, and he survives. He's the lone survivor of the crash of a FedEx cargo plane that goes down over the Pacific Ocean. And he washes up in his little life raft. He washes up on this uninhabited island along with an assortment of FedEx packages that have been following him in the tide. It's sort of a modern day Robinson Crusoe story. And he ends up being marooned on this island for over four years, which means four years of isolation, four years of fighting to survive, four years of dwindling hope. In fact, there didn't seem to be much reason for hope for him at all. There were no ships that were passing by. There were no airplanes that were flying overhead. There were no search and rescue crews that he could try to get their attention. But along the way, there were a few items, a few pieces of stuff that had washed up, stuff he had in his pockets. There were a few items that kept him thinking about a better future. He had this broken pocket watch that his girlfriend had given him, and it had a picture of her face right inside the cover, and he keeps this picture near him at all times so that he can think of her and remember life back home. There's a FedEx package that washed up on the beach with him that he never opens, but somebody had drawn a pair of angel wings near the address label on this box, and somehow that picture of those wings 
wings continued to provide him with inspiration. And then who could forget the volleyball, Wilson? Who could forget this volleyball that washes up in one of the FedEx boxes and it ends up with Chuck's bloody handprint on it that kind of resembles a face, and that's Wilson. This is Chuck's constant companion. There's other various items that came from the FedEx boxes, VHS tapes and ice skates and a cocktail dress. And then one day, Chuck discovers a wall panel from a porta potty that has washed in with the tide. And that wall panel gives him an idea of how to build a raft that eventually gets him off of the island. And part of the brilliance of this story is that Chuck never did receive the things that he thought he needed. All that time on the island, he never got the things that he wished for the most. I mean, it would have been nice if one of those FedEx pack packages had had a satellite phone in it, right? It would have been really awesome if there had been some kind of a signal mirror or a propane stove or a lighter or something like that. But he never got the things that he thought he needed. He never saw rescuers coming over the horizon to save him. He never discovered a settlement of people on the other side of the island. He never, he nev no one ever saw the signals that he was sending, the fire and the logs that he laid out spelling help on the beach. Nobody ever saw that. But the things that he never would have imagined needing, the things that he never would have chosen for himself, the ice skates, the VHS tapes, the volleyball, the porta potty. Those were the things that saved his life. And I want to tell you there are four books in the New Testament, four books in the Bible that contain accounts of the life of Jesus. And in those books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the constant themes in all of those accounts of Jesus' life is that powerful people had trouble imagining how Jesus could be a solution to their problem. Powerful people looked at Jesus, looked at everything that he did, listened to everything that he said, watched what he was about, listened to the rumors of everything people were saying about him, and they thought, that's not what we need. That's not what we're looking for. That's not what was promised. That's not going to help. From the very earliest days of Jesus' life and continuing on to the very end of his ministry, there were political leaders, for one, kings and governors, who saw Jesus as a threat to their power. Jesus never campaigned for political office. Jesus never campaigned for political influence. He never recruited or trained any soldiers. He didn't even request any meetings with any government officials. But those officials looked at Jesus and they saw Jesus as a problem. They looked at Jesus and they thought, that's dangerous. That's a threat. That's a risk to me and my power and my position and my influence. If the rumors about him are true, then I better be on the lookout. I better do something about that. But it wasn't just the political figures. There were religious figures too who thought Jesus posed a threat to them and to their influence and their system of doing things. They couldn't see how Jesus' claims and Jesus' teachings could be beneficial to their cause. Like ice skates on a desert island, they couldn't see 
how this would be helpful. In fact, most of the people of Israel didn't know what to do with Jesus. Most of the people who met Jesus couldn't see how Jesus could help them. And it's not because they didn't think they needed help. No, just, just the opposite. The reality is that Israel was on the lookout for somebody to come to their rescue, to come to their aid. Israel was clamoring for someone who would have the wherewithal, who would have the vision, who would have the courage and the resources to drive out the mighty Romans. Israel didn't like being subject to the empire. They didn't appreciate paying heavy taxes to Caesar. And so most of the Jews were on the lookout for a leader who could improve their nation's situation on the world stage. And whether that happened through diplomacy or through military might, they didn't really care. As long as somebody got the job done. Most of the Jews, when they calculated every, all of the things that were going on in their world and they summed it all up, most of the Jews figured that Rome was the problem that needed to be solved and solving that problem was going to require power. And Jesus never talked about it. Jesus didn't talk about dealing with the Romans. Jesus didn't talk about getting rid of the empire. He didn't talk about getting rid of Caesar. He never talked about making Israel more powerful. Instead of talking about these external problems, instead of talking about these external forces that were keeping Israel down, Jesus talked about internal stuff. Jesus talked about repentance. Jesus talked about justice. Jesus talked about forgiveness. He talked about making Israel righteous. Jesus was talking about answers to problems that most of the Jews didn't know they had. He was talking about answers and solutions to problems that the Jews weren't even thinking about, and that's why they didn't know what to do with him. They weren't sure how he could be helpful. They weren't sure that they needed what he was offering. You see, the problem was Jesus claimed to be a king, but he didn't act like any kind of king that they'd ever seen before. As far as they could tell, Jesus never advanced, never rose above his humble beginnings. They looked at Jesus and said, isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't he the one from Nazareth? And people said, where's Nazareth? Isn't he the one that we saw growing up, Mary and Joseph's kid, you know. They saw him as a commoner. They viewed him as someone with no pedigree, no privilege. He came from a blue-collar family. He came from a blue-collar town. No real education to speak of. He was a manual laborer, a tradesman. There was nothing special about him that would cause them to think of him as a king, at least as far as they could see. But if they had only known the whole story, if they had only known the grand drama that was playing out, if they had only realized where Jesus came from before Nazareth, if they had only realized where Jesus' really, his real home was, then they would have realized that Jesus' beginnings weren't humble at all. They would have realized that Jesus' humble beginnings and Jesus' commoner's life that was all part of his leadership. That was part of his vision. It was part of the way that the king was loving his subjects. 
And we have this advantage of being able to look in the rearview mirror, of being able to look with hindsight and see the entirety of the story. We have this advantage of being able to look back at the entire scope of Jesus's life and mission. And when we start to investigate and pay attention to what Jesus was up to, we can start to see that his lowliness was a result of his love. That Jesus's lowliness was part of his love for humanity. And if we look closely enough, we'll realize that a lowly king was just the kind of king we needed. I want to point your attention this morning to a single verse, a single passage in the New Testament portion of your Bible. It's in a book called 2 Corinthians. It's probably halfway through the New Testament. And 2 Corinthians, those of you who are familiar with this book at all, you're going to think 2 Corinthians is not a typical starting point for a message during the Christmas season. It's not a typical starting point for an Advent message. 2 Corinthians doesn't talk about Mary or Joseph. It doesn't talk about wise men or shepherds. doesn't talk about stars or swaddling clothes. 2 Corinthians is pretty far removed from Jesus' birth story altogether. This is a letter. It's a letter that was written by a missionary named Paul decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. And Paul was writing this letter to this little upstart church in the Greek city of Corinth. This little small band of believers who were living in a pagan society. And he's writing this letter. And in fact, it's part of an ongoing dialogue that's between them. This is probably letter number five or six in their ongoing correspondence. We don't have copies of all of those letters. But they had this back and forth correspondence in which they, in which they were discussing all of the issues facing their church, and Paul was giving them advice and instruction and casting vision. But in this letter, Paul's got some particularly good news to share with them because he says, I'm planning on coming to see you. I'm coming to Corinth, and he wanted to visit. He wanted to help them, and he also wanted to invite them to an opportunity to help others. You see, Paul was taking up a collection of money to benefit some poverty-stricken Christians who lived in Jerusalem. And he had already mentioned this effort to the Corinthians in a prior letter, but in this letter he's asking them, start making preparations for your contribution because I'm coming to pick it up. And Paul realized that these Corinthian Christians, they'd never met their counterparts in Jerusalem. That was over 800 miles away over land and sea. He understood that the Corinthians themselves weren't overly wealthy and that their contribution was going to represent a real sacrifice on their part. He knew that he was asking them to trust him about the need in Jerusalem and to trust him with, it's not like they were gonna hand him a cashier's check or send it by Venmo. I mean, they were gonna trust him with the money that they, he was gonna carry for them to Jerusalem. But Paul was convinced that not only should he ask them to make this contribution, but he was convinced that the Corinthians would respond favorably because he was convinced that their lives had actually been changed by the good news of Jesus. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, in the middle of this proposal about this contribution, Paul reminds his readers about the essence of the good news of Jesus. And here's what he says. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although he was rich, he became poor 
for your sakes so that you could become rich through his poverty. Now this is written, remember, this is written in the middle of what's essentially a fundraising letter. But in this one verse, in this one verse, just these 30 or so words, Paul sums up Jesus's heart for humanity. Because the story of Jesus, the story of this baby born in Bethlehem, this story that we're celebrating this season, this story that we're reminding each other about, the story of Jesus is a story of giving up power. It's a story about giving up position. It's a story about giving up privilege all for the sake of people who have none. At Christmas, we celebrate this event that's called the Incarnation, and that's just a big theological word that refers to Jesus, the deity, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, becoming human. You see, Jesus always has been. Jesus always was. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that wasn't the beginning of Jesus. Jesus was with God since the beginning. There has never been a time when Jesus didn't exist. But in the incarnation, Jesus experienced some things for the first time. Jesus experienced for the first time what it was like to be human. Jesus came and experienced the brokenness of this world. Jesus experienced pain and loss. Can you imagine Jesus for the very first time felt what it was like to be tired? He'd never felt tired before. He'd never felt lonely before. He'd never felt anxious before. He'd never experienced betrayal. He'd never been embarrassed He'd never been humiliated. He'd never been hurt. These were all firsts for Jesus. They were new feelings for him, new experiences. And the good news that Paul is trying to remind the Corinthians about, and the good news that Christmas is trying to remind us about, is that all of these new experiences, all of this hurt, all of this pain, all this drama, all the humiliation, the embarrassment, the fatigue, the anxiety, all of that. Jesus knew it was coming, and he chose it. The story of Christmas is that Jesus knew what he was walking into and said, yes, I'll go. Jesus knew that the incarnation would be painful. Jesus knew what he was giving up. Jesus knew that he was walking away from the riches of heaven for the life experience of a helpless baby, a refugee toddler, a blue-collar worker, a divisive teacher, and a crucified spectacle. He knew what he was walking into. And our message, our gospel... Our good news and our hope is that Jesus did all of this by choice. That Jesus did all of this on purpose because he knew even better than the human knew. Jesus knew what humanity really needed. 
The early Christians used to sing a song together that said, He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. It probably sounds better in the Greek, you know. It rhymes a little better than it does here. But they would sing this song. They'd say, when he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I want you to look at that passage. I want you to look at just those, those two verses, and I want you to notice all the active verbs. I want you to notice the words that describe what Jesus did. I want you to notice the words that describe what happened. He emptied himself. He took the form of a slave. He became like human beings. He humbled himself. You see, there was nothing that happened to Jesus that Jesus didn't approve. There was nothing on earth, nothing in his lifetime of his earthly ministry, nothing that happened to Jesus that Jesus didn't choose. There was nothing that was done to Jesus that Jesus didn't allow first. Jesus signed up for this. Jesus opted in for this experience. Jesus chose this treatment. Jesus allowed this pain that he endured because he knew what you needed, because he knew what I needed, because he knew that without him we were lost. I mentioned a few moments ago that most of the people who knew Jesus during his earthly life didn't know what to do with him. They didn't know what category to put him in. There was all this chatter going around about his royal ambitions. All of this rumor going around about his divine origin. He spoke of God the Father in a way that was totally different that they had, than they had ever heard before. He spoke with an authority that they hadn't experienced before, but they couldn't see past their preconceived notions of what the Messiah was going to be like. They couldn't look past their expectations of what a king would be. They wanted a king who would take charge and lead the way. And here was Jesus constantly serving. They were looking for a king who wouldn't take no for an answer. And here's Jesus, constantly offering blessing to the people who curse him. They were anticipating a king who would fight for power, who would clamor to climb the ladder and to gain influence and to exert power over all of the rest of the world and to force his way. And then here's Jesus constantly giving up power. When he realizes he's the most powerful person in any room, he starts to serve and he starts, he's using his power for God's glory instead of his own. They were looking for a king who would be something they wanted. They weren't looking for the king that they needed. 
They weren't looking for the king that the world needed. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, what kind of king are you looking for? What kind of king are you looking for in your life? Because our expectation so many times, so often our expectation of how this religious experience is going to go, about how this worship transaction is going to go, our expectation is that we're going to show up and we're going to do our part and we're going to make our deposit and we're going to follow the, the rules and the expectations and all of that. And then God's going to reciprocate by paving the path and making things easy that God's going to fix the problems that we've been worried about, that God's going to address all of the external things that have been happening in our life, and if only we'll just show up often enough, if only we'll study often enough, if only we'll read and pray often enough and sing often enough, our expectation is that Jesus will start to deal with some of the external problems that have been plaguing our sleepless nights and making our heart rate get elevated. That's our hope. And all the while, Jesus isn't worried about all of these external things. Jesus is talking about what's inside you. Jesus is not talking about the external problems. He's talking about the internal issues. You're, 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 we're expecting Jesus to be somebody who's going to come and use his power to make the world work our way. And Jesus is saying, I want to teach you to be somebody who blesses those that curse you. Jesus is saying, I'm here to show you, to show you that the powerless, the meek, the poor in spirit are those who are really blessed. Jesus is saying, you're wanting me to try to address and fix all of these problems for you and make them somebody else's problem when the reality is the problem is right inside here and I can help with that. I want to teach you to love. I want to teach you to forgive. I want to teach you to turn the other cheek. I want to teach you to use your power and your privilege and your position and your resources for the sake of God's purposes. I want to teach you not to be afraid. I just don't know if that's the kind of king we're looking for. But Christmas is here. Christmas is here to remind us that when Jesus chose to walk away from the riches of heaven. When Jesus chose to be incarnated and become one of us, when Jesus chose to live this human experience, he chose to live in powerlessness, in weakness, in humility and modesty. When Jesus chose this life, Jesus said, I'm not taking the easy way. I'm not going to demand my way. Jesus said, I'm going to show up and let them do what they will to me so that my love can be most tangible, most visible, most evident in the way I respond. He wasn't the kind of king anybody was looking for, but he's the kind of king that we need. And so I want to invite you this year to let Christmas begin to change your perspective. 
that as you reflect on this Jesus story, as you reflect on what it is that Jesus came to do, if we only think about the manger and the star and the angel and the shepherd, we've missed the breadth of the story. I need to tell you that on the other side of that, if we only think of Jesus in terms of the crucifixion and the resurrection, we have missed the breadth of the story. Because it's really easy, it's really easy to depend on Jesus to be your savior without having any interest in letting Jesus be your king. He's not the kind of king that we all think we need, but he knows better than we do. And he's exactly the kind of king that our situation calls for. It teaches us how to live. It teaches us who to be. It teaches us the life that we were meant to live for God's honor.